Welcome to our July 9th, 2017 edition of Sidebar, our chance to respond to questions, comments, and theories, and other things that don't fit into our regular episodes. I'm your host, Sean Gerd. And I'm Scott J. We originally planned to release this episode a few days ago, but Scott and I have been following up on a couple new leads, and we actually spent an entire day in Orlando this past week. We're getting back on our Sunday schedule, and we're starting right now. After last episode, we had more voicemails, Facebook messages, emails, and tweets than ever before. So we're not going to be able to get to everything on this show. But we're so thankful to those of you who are with us and along to participate. We're going to respond to the voicemails first, and then we'll get to the rest of it. But just a heads up, some of the audio in the voicemails isn't that great. But we did do our best to try to clean it up. Also, make sure you stick around till the end of the show to hear about another podcast that's searching for answers. Getting things started, we have quite a few voicemails we'd like to get to, so we'll go ahead and play those now. Hey, Sean. My name is Phil Crow. I'm the podcast, which I really like, by the way. Um, and I just had a few comments to make. I'm at work, so I'm trying to talk to you as best I can. Um, but one of my comments is that you said that the apartment slash condo was under renovation, so... Wouldn't it be wise to check on the contractors that were involved in the job and possibly see who was at the you know, working on the buildings that day? And if it's possible to delve into their records to see if anyone had called in that day. Um, I know the nature of the business may be a little transient, so there's a clue. And uh, I just want to wish you the best. Um, I lived in Orlando for 22 years. I haven't lived there in quite a while, but uh, I'm really interested in your case, and um, thank you for your time, and I'm looking forward to hearing more. Have a great day, Sean. Thanks. Bye. Would it be wise? Absolutely. And this is one of those things that we do know that law enforcement did eventually do. For us, 11 years later, it's been quite the challenge. It's not to say that we're not working on it, but I'll be up front. We haven't been able to get very far. We'll continue to work this angle, I can assure you of that, but until we make progress, we're going to have to operate on the assumption that law enforcement was able to rule out any red flags that they may have encountered. So, thanks for the voicemail. Hi, my name is Gretchen. I'm from Tucson, Arizona, and I love the podcast. I've been following Jennifer's story for over a year since I saw it on Disappeared, and I'm so glad to get um, some more information on it and see that it just, you know get it out there and get her story out there. My, um, I don't have so much a question, but more of an observation. Um, when you were talking to her mom way back in the early episodes about the her phone being powered down at 1040, and her, I know her mom said that the police never came out and said that they don't know where that was started from, but I'm just wondering if did it maybe mean 1040 in the morning and it wasn't 1040 at night? I don't know. I mean, I, I know that the cop police didn't say anything. Um, or haven't said anything about that, but maybe that's where that theory came from, since they're, since you're um, kind of going on the fact that possibly the abduction happened sometime in the morning, so maybe her phone was powered off at 10.40 a.m. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Bye. To clarify what Gretchen's referring to here, on much of the information that's available online about Jennifer Kessie's case, there's statements that her phone and the phone that was left in her condo by one of her brother's friends 
was powered off at 10.40 p.m. the night of January 23rd. And yes, Gretchen's also correct that Joyce Cassie, Jennifer's mom, told us in episode two that that's never been told to her. So it's one of the most interesting details surrounding this case because if it did happen, it would almost certainly suggest that Jennifer was abducted the night of January 23rd. And to Gretchen's point, could this have been mistaken for the morning of January 24th at 10.40 a.m.? I mean, I guess we can't really rule that out based on the fact that there's no confirmation of what time Jennifer's phone was powered off and the battery removed. The only thing we know is that it happened. We also know that the friend's phone lost its power sometime over the weekend, and so I did want to clarify that. But confirming the time of Jennifer's phone being powered off is so important to the timeline. But unfortunately, right now, nothing's changed since episode two. We have no confirmation one way or the other, and so we just kind of have to leave it up in the air for now. Hi, Sean and Scott. This is Becca. Um, I'm in the Unconcluded podcast discussion group and just wanted to ask a couple of my questions um, for you guys to answer. Uh, I just saw the post that there will be um, hopefully a quick sidebar episode coming out before um, Sunday's new episode, so I wanted to get my questions in. Um, I I can't seem to understand, even after listening to um, the episode you guys released last night, the 29th, all of the details surrounding her ex-boyfriend. And um, after hearing the episode, I'm wondering if uh, you or you guys can elaborate on what Jennifer's mom said in regards to uh, not being able to say everything um, to the public that um, she may want to or that the police know. And so I'm wondering if uh, she told you guys this or if you know this, um, if the uh, her ex-boyfriend, maybe some of the facts or information surrounding him from that night are some of those details that she's not allowed to speak about, um, that the police have told her that they will not be releasing. Um, I just feel like that, that um, this might be a pretty big, uh, you know, question in her case, just the boyfriend and and um, his actions and uh, whereabouts that evening, being at the bar and and all of that. So that was really my question. Um, I guess I also would love to know um, how long you guys plan on doing this podcast? Is it going just kind of, is at this point um, just going on until you feel like it's done or until it's solved? Or um, I just kind of wanted to know how long you guys were going to be uh, going with this podcast. And um, once, once you've decided to end it, um, will you guys start investigating um, someone else's disappearance? There are so many out there, so I was just curious about that. Thanks, Sean and Scott. Love the podcast. I can't wait until the sidebar and new episode. Thanks again. Bye. Bye from Georgia, Atlanta. Bye. There's a couple different questions here, so let's answer the first one. As far as the ex-boyfriend and Joyce Cussie's comments about some things that the police are withholding and she's unable to share. I think that that was more in reference to the coworker than the ex-boyfriend. But I agree, knowing more about what the ex-boyfriend was doing that night and the next morning is a big deal. I think it will go a long way to removing suspicion, but we just don't have that information. And it's one of the reasons I appealed directly to him on the last episode. So hopefully at some point he'll decide to come forward and remove himself from the conversation. The second part of that question about how long we plan to do this podcast, my answer is always the same. And that's as long as it takes. 
And I guess what I mean by that is that we don't have to feel pressured to fit this into a certain number of episodes or a certain period of time. As long as there's still ways to make more people aware of Jennifer Kessie, to bring forward new leads and tips, then we're going to keep doing it. And I'll also tell you that we have gotten requests from other families asking if we'd be interested in helping with their particular loved one that may be missing. And my response to them has always been that we're really focused on this case right now, but if some point in the future we feel like we have the time to take on another case, we may do so. So I'm not closing the door to that. That's certainly something that we may consider in the future. But for right now, this is where our focus is. Hey guys, um, it's Jill calling. I'm thinking about something. I hope this makes sense. But um, I'm wondering if you could talk to someone that Jennifer worked with, because it's puzzling to me um, that the morning of January 24th, 2006, when she didn't show up for work, that her someone at her office decided to call her parents. Um, if it's true that her the other manager at her office was late for work that day, didn't come in till noon. Did someone call his wife to see where he was to check on him? It just seemed, if they did, it just seemed suspicious, like maybe some of the office knew something was wrong. Why didn't they call, you know, both families? I don't know. Maybe they did. Maybe he called in and said he's going to be late. But that would be something, you know, I'd want an answer to. Like, did he call in and say he'd be late? Or did they call his wife to find out if he was okay? Um, just, Just another thought. Thanks again for everything you do. You're doing a great job. This has been tricky. We've talked to a couple of former coworkers, but the problem is that they either don't have much information or they're unwilling to share it. Remember, in Jennifer's case, not only did she not show up, but she didn't call in and her phone was going directly to voicemail. And as for the coworker, your guess is as good as mine. We just don't know anything about that at this time. Hey there, my name's Devin and I've been listening. I just had a question is, I don't know if I mentioned her and said anything about it, but what was the overall point of them moving her car and only moving it so far away? Was there a reason behind it? Was there any, any point of it at all? Because obviously the police didn't find anything out of it, so maybe the person went back to it later and cleaned it. You know, I was just curious if you had any thoughts or ideas on that as to why the car was moved in the first place. Thank you. That audio was a little rough, so if you didn't quite hear what he was saying, he asked what was the overall point of the person of interest moving Jennifer's car? If there was a reason behind it, and was there any reason at all? And as I'm sure most of you know, we just don't know the reason behind this. But if you're asking me to speculate, I think it's probably likely one of two reasons, or a combination of both. One, it draws attention away from where the crime actually happened whether that's at Jennifer's condo or somewhere else. And two, it gives them more time. And to a degree, it worked. It took the police two days to find her car. And if you remember, the initial detectives told the family that she'd probably just left to blow off steam after a fight with her boyfriend. And she'd be back soon. So had the car been left at her condo, I think there would have been more initial concern on their end. So ultimately, it was just moved to distract investigators. And to some extent, it worked. That'll do it for the voicemail portion of the show. We'll now get into our social media and email section. First up, we've got a question from Facebook. Were the workers living in the empty apartments? 
Was it an above board thing or were they just squatting? Yes, workers were living in the empty units at Jennifer's condo. And it's my understanding that they were allowed to live there. I don't know if that makes it above board or not, but there was an understanding beyond just them sneaking into the units and staying there. There were a lot of things going on with the construction and things at Jennifer's condo that would have made a lot of people uneasy. The next question comes to us from Kathy on Facebook, and Kathy would like to know if Jennifer knew that her ex-boyfriend was one of the people who would be staying in her condo. I'm glad you asked this question because there are two things that we need to clarify here. After the episode aired, Joyce Cassie responded to a couple questions on our Facebook group. One, answering this specific question, and two, correcting more misinformation that had been out there for a really long time. To answer the question here, Joyce said that Jennifer did know that the ex-boyfriend would be at her condo. However, and this is probably the bigger piece of information here, he didn't actually spend the night at the condo. He came over to hang out and have some drinks, but he drove home for the night. That doesn't explain the circumstances of January 23rd and 24th, but it's still a very important distinction to make. And it's a major piece of misinformation that's been out there for a really long time. Okay, now from Amanda on Facebook, and she has a comment slash question. She says, I've been most disappointed with hearing about the lack of results from the anonymous tip line. Isn't this the one with Detective Barb who often makes an appearance on Monsters in the Morning? She just seems so enthusiastic about their mission, and this podcast gave me a completely different view of that. I don't live in Orlando, so I can't say that I've ever heard of this person that you refer to, but I assume it's the same tip line. And I do want to take this opportunity to say something. A tip line like the crime line is so important because it does lead to credible information to help solve crimes. But you're right. From what we've come across over the course of this podcast, it does seem that there's been some kind of breakdown in his effectiveness. If anything else, hopefully these issues can be addressed so that this needed service works to the best of its ability. All that said, we still encourage anyone who wants to come forward and speak to authorities in this case to please call the actual detectives at the Orlando Police Department that are working Jennifer's case. Next up is a question from Marsha on Facebook. Do you know if Erica has ever been shown a picture of the ex-boyfriend or coworker to see if either is the man that she claims to have seen with Jennifer? Yes, she has. The ex didn't look familiar to her. The coworker, on the other hand, had the same hair and the same skin as the person she saw, but she says that the person appeared to be thinner than the pictures that she was shown. She said it possibly could have been that person, but she couldn't be sure. Here's a question that we received from Paul via Facebook. On the POI footage, what direction does her car come from when it's parked? Was it coming from her condo? This we simply just don't know. The video doesn't show an angle at which the direction Jennifer's car traveled can be determined at all. And even if it did, it probably would have been on Texas Avenue, and that wouldn't indicate which direction the car had come from before it was able to turn on Texas Avenue. But besides Texas Avenue, there's also a couple other entrances as well to the parking lot. So we really have no way of determining at all where the car came from before it ended up at the Huntington on the Green. Okay, here's a question that we've gotten quite a few times. There are some rumors out there on some websites about a key fob being found elsewhere in Florida that was claimed to have belonged to Jennifer and was in fact, or so they claim, the missing keys. Sean, do you have any insight on that for us? 
I don't, but Jennifer's mom did. She responded to a question on our Facebook group about this as well, and her answer was no, that her keys or key fob have never been recovered. So again, more misinformation out there on the internet that ends up not being true. Next up, we have a question that relates to the document that was read on episode six. There was a statement from the employee about the quote unquote manager. And in the statement, the word involved was used when it came to Jin and the manager. Sean, can you fill us in a little bit more, go into some more details on that? Well, the only details I have are what was in that letter, which just used the word involved. And we've actually received quite a few responses about this. And I agree, it's pretty strange to see it in the written document. We've heard from Jennifer's parents saying how she talked to them about rejecting this particular coworker's advances. Uh, and the best I can come up with is that it was some assumptions that were being made on what the coworker was telling others, or simply that the word involved doesn't mean what we're all taking it to mean. Maybe it just means they were involved in a work project together. Is it possible that Jennifer was involved with the coworker romantically? I mean, with everything else in this case, I suppose it's technically possible, but I just don't think it's likely. And then with the rest of the letter, I do think it's interesting, but it's still something that we need more clarification on. Next up, we have an interesting take from Alicia on Facebook. She says, The construction worker as POI does not add up for me. The bloodhound traced the POI sent back to one spot near Jennifer's condo. If it was one of the construction workers, wouldn't the bloodhound have traced his scent all over the complex? You bring up a good point. If the POI was simply returning to work, then the scent probably wouldn't have ended at the stairs. It probably would have been elsewhere in the building. Honestly, the dog tracking back to the mosaic continues to be one of the most baffling parts of this case. Um, to the point where I believe that it's probably one of two scenarios. One, the POI returned to the mosaic to get their own car or bike or other mode of transportation. Or two, the POI didn't actually return to the mosaic. And that there's something along the lines of a bus stop scenario that I mentioned in episode 3 at play. And could both of these be wrong? Absolutely. I think the point here is that did the POI return to the condo building and then just continue to mill around the building all day? I don't think so. Does that automatically eliminate them as a possible worker? I don't think that's the case either. All right, here's a question from Jamie. Did her boyfriend have an alibi from 10 p.m. to 9 a.m.? And was he ruled out based on distance? Yes. Jennifer's boyfriend, the person she'd been on the vacation with, was in South Florida during the time of Jennifer's disappearance. He was questioned by investigators numerous times, and he's just not a suspect in this case. If there's anyone that I feel comfortable saying is not involved, it's him. Laylee on Facebook asks, what other areas along the path between Huntington on the Green and the foot of her stairs did the dog pick up on? We have a lot of good questions on this episode, but unfortunately, a lot of them we can't answer. And this is another one. We just don't know. The details that we have is that the dog tracked the scent from the Huntington on the Green through a break in the fence at the Mosaic at Millennia and to the back steps of Jennifer's condo building. Any stops or points in between those two, we just aren't a glare on. So unfortunately, I can't really answer your question. We've got another question from Laylee on Facebook. She wants to know if there's an alibi for the ex-boyfriend and the co-worker for the morning of January 24th. They may have alibis, but we don't know what they are. Considering that they haven't been officially cleared by law enforcement, we would have to think that if they do have one, it's not airtight. 
Now, we could be wrong, and that's why I asked them at the beginning of last episode to go public and clear up what they were doing and let everyone move on. But right now, there are no alibis that we are aware of for either of them. And moving on, we've got a question from Laylee. Do they know for a fact that the friend's phone was already boxed and taped up by Jennifer to be mailed out? Three questions in a row for Laylee. So thank you, Laylee, for participating in the show. Uh, To answer your question, no, not at all. There has never been mention of the phone being boxed up. The only thing that we know is that when Jennifer spoke with her family after work on January 23rd, she agreed to mail the phone back and said that she was going to do so from work the next day, the assumption being that she'd pack it up at work. Next up is Julie on Facebook, and Julie wants to know if the mileage on Jennifer's car was looked at and was there mileage on the car that was unaccounted for. We've never been told anything specifically about mileage, and probably the reason being that no one's really going to have any way of knowing what the mileage reading was on Jennifer's car after she returned home from work on January 23rd, but before she was abducted. What authorities did do was to use the gas in her car to try to determine how far the car may have been driven. Based on the fact that her tank was filled before she left from Fort Lauderdale, and how far she drove to work in Ocoee and then back to her condo, the expected amount of fuel then was compared against the amount of fuel that was left in the car at the Huntington on the Green, and investigators determined that they don't think the car was driven very far. Now, is that completely foolproof? I don't think so. But it's still something that I believe to be accurate in this case. I don't believe that Jennifer's car was driven a great distance. That's going to wrap it up for this week's sidebar. Thanks again to everyone for participating in this show. Without all of you, there won't be progress. Because of your efforts, there was an article about Jennifer Kessie in the podcast and the Orlando Sentinel this past week. And for the first time since January of 2016, Jennifer Kessie's name was in a headline in the Orlando newspaper. It goes without saying that the podcast has grown a lot over the last two months, and you are making a difference. Keep thinking and sharing and participating. Also, a special thank you to Jill and Shannon. Your efforts have not gone unnoticed. To help with the continued growth and awareness, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Also, a huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters, Bethany, Kenneth, Martha, Dawn, Felicia, Roxana, Chrissy, Gemma, Josh, Christopher, Abby, Aaron, Amber, Michelle, Jennifer, and Stylianos. Thank you so much. If you're interested in supporting the show, you can do so by heading over to unconcluded.com and clicking support. As I mentioned at the top of the show, There's another podcast that deserves a listen. The Fall Line podcast is working to bring awareness to the case of missing twins Danette and Jeanette Milbrook in Augusta, Georgia. I want you to check out that right now, and we'll be back next week with Episode 7. The Fall Line Podcast, a true crime audio serial, investigates the March 18, 1990 disappearance of Augusta, Georgia twins Danette and Jeanette Milbrook. The twins, who were 15 at the time, were treated without cause as runaways, and their case was closed less than a week after their 17th birthdays. 
Their family worked tirelessly to get the case reopened and finally managed to attract the notice of a newly elected sheriff in 2013. Since then, there has been no movement in the case, no leads, no investigative breakthroughs, and no answers. Why was the twins' case closed? What happened to their original case file? Why were they removed from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's database? The Fall Line podcast works to amplify the voices of the twins' family and to uncover facts, explore and dispel rumors, and develop theories in the case. Tune in, join the discussion on Facebook, and remember, we must find Jeanette and Jeanette Millbrook. Find us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts.